This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. Welcome to our Behind the Markets podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz. Alongside Warren Frank Professor Jeremy Siegel, we tackle the latest market trends every week on Business Radio, powered by the Warren School, Sirius XM, Channel 132. Our guest consists of experts like the world's leading authority on long-term economic growth, Bob Gordon. We will continue to see jobs created rather than destroyed. Former chair of the Federal Reserve, Janet Yellen. I mean, I don't think either of us ever expected that we would live through a financial crisis. Or even the head of the digital industry. Foundation, Arvind Gupta. The reason that people are talking about India is massive digitization and financial inclusion that we have done over the last couple of years. Enjoy this week's show. Welcome to Behind the Markets here on Business Radio, powered by the Ward School. I'm your host, Jeremy Schwartz, Director of Research at Wisdom Tree. My co-host is Wharton Finance Professor Jeremy Siegel. He's the author of Stocks for Long Run and the Future for Investors. Please note, I'm registered representative for Side Fund Services. Professor Siegel is a senior advisor to Wisdom Tree. Our discussion today is not tied to the offer or sale of any investment products, and the views of our guests are their own and not those of Wisdom Tree's affiliates. We're going to have a really interesting show today. Everything in the market has been a lot about international China trade tariffs, a lot of anxiety, really, even in the U.S., stemming from uncertainty surrounding a lot of the emerging markets, the currencies, the equities. Um, we've got two great experts. Uh, Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan, is back. He's one of our return guests. Uh, always great to check in with Jesper. And, and then also a, a guest from uh, London talking about emerging markets and what's going on in those parts of the world, Edward Cole. We're going to be excited to talk to those two gentlemen in just a moment. Uh, but we have Professor Siegel kicking us off. Professor, just uh, a little bit more volatility this week. Any thoughts on what's been uh, what's been going on? Yeah, volatility uh, follows volatility. <laughs> uh, not not too much of a surprise over here. Yeah, and uh, yeah, there would be you know what you know. I think China they announced was uh, it did bounce back last last night, but it was uh, you know down thirty percent um, on um, Thursday from its peak earlier this year. So that's a that's a that's a pretty major uh, decline in China. Uh, going on U.S. economy. So what I see is st- it's still remaining very strong. I mean, the only sector that's beginning to show signs of weakness is housing on, on, on the disappointing side. Not surprised when mortgages are five percent and you know the, the rates rates are going up. Uh, but uh, the Philly Fed index, the Empire index. Um, uh, and and the others are 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 still very very firm. So I mean, it looks like we're still powering ahead at a you know two hundred thousand eight hundred eighty thousand job rate. Now of course uh, Hurricane Michael might put some dent in it, uh, just like Hurricane Florence did the previous month. Um, uh, and some advisors think that uh, Michael might subtract one or two tenths from uh, this fourth quarter growth, but. Uh, it still seems very, very strong. I mean, what again? I think the market has got to contend with the higher interest rates. Uh, we see the ten-year at three nineteen. Now, uh, it, it, there, it does catch a bid when we see these stock market drops, as it does. But it seems to be firm. It, it pushes back up whenever the pressure is off the market. So, uh, I think the trend of the ten-year is still up, which is going to challenge uh, equities, uh, obviously uh, going forward. We also see. You know the Italy. I'm, I look at that a lot. Uh, the Italy ten-year is also going up. It's now 371. I think 
a uh, certainly a, a, a near-term record relative spread to the German index, and there's a lot of debt there. And Italy, unlike Greece, I mean, it's much bigger. So in the crisis, if there's a debt crisis there, it's it's certainly much going to be much more challenging. And I don't see anything right away. Um, uh, but there, there's pressures in in these debt markets, um, and as interest rates rise, uh, I think it's going to you know keep equities pretty much uh, in a narrow range. I mean, the other good news, I mean, earnings are coming in great. Uh, the, the third quarter earnings um, uh, on the whole, even P and G, you know, it's, it's you know up five percent today on better than expected earnings. So even the traditionals are. Are showing good. IBM didn't show, but uh, you know many of the others. And uh, so you know that the earnings are coming in. The question is going forward. Of course, we have the midterms coming up in in a few weeks, and of course the uh, the threat of the uh, trade tariffs. Those are the two resolution issues at the end of the year, and then watching interest rates uh, after that. And so, yeah, I mean, I remember we just heard you talking earlier this week and saying that at the beginning of the year you called for 325 at the end of this year on the 10-year, and it seems on track for that. Yeah. And, well, of course, it's a miracle when you, if, you, if, it, if you'd exactly hit it, and, and we're still more, you know, more than two months away on that. But, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I read through the, the minutes of the FOMC, which were released, released uh, uh, Wednesday afternoon, and uh, it was market regarded as mildly hawkish uh, you know one one of the phrases in there said uh that only a couple which is their reference to two uh of the uh, 16 FOMC members thought it was uh, not appropriate to continue to raise rates um uh you know uh, uh even though we don't see inflation uh, in the data, that it would be just too late to wait to that particular uh, point. Now, we also know James Board, which we had on a couple of weeks ago, also thinks we're at that restrictive rate, but almost everyone else from the minutes, we are still account- accommodative. Remember, they think the long-term neutral is 3%, or only 2 to 2 and a quarter percent. Uh, by the way, another confirmation of how tight that labor market is really came from the JOLTS report, um, Job Openings and the Labor Turnover Survey, which follows the labor market report, and a record number of jobs opening, and record number of jobs uh, opening relative to unemployment. Quits are up dramatically as people move to better-paying jobs. Um, it, 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 it's hard for me, when I see all that data, to, to see wages continue in a you know, 2 to 3% range uh, given that tightness uh, in in the labor market, and I think that's the same data that the uh, the Federal Reserve is looking at. Very good. So I want to transition with with a question for you, um, because we uh, sort of to help tease out the conversation we're going to have on the rest of the show with with Ed Cole and a little bit with Jesper. Um, but you know, they're going to be focusing a lot on the international markets, and you've talked a lot about valuations yeah. on them. And one of my other, one of our other co-hosts that comes on a lot, Wesley Gray of Alpha Architect, he's been a skeptic on emerging market investing generally. And I, I was asking him, well, we've got a few emerging markets people on the show today. Tell me why you hate emerging markets. When I say why does he hate it, but he said to me in some questions. 
questions and he goes, well, what are the true marginal benefits for a diversified portfolio? So he says, for example, if you own U.S. stocks, developed world stocks, commodities, REITs, bonds, he sees little portfolio benefit to pooling emerging markets. And he goes, that's an empirical statement, not an opinion. And then he says, really, is it a diversifier if there's a high propensity for a correlation going to one when anything bad happens? So he thinks there's this huge beta to global equities when everything's going bad, and so that's that's not good. And then he talks about the difficulty of access, the cost of access, um, trading these emerging markets. Um, so maybe, so he's a skeptic. Uh, yeah. And I know you're more uh, from the future more for positive, investors. You're and, more positive. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, uh, I think, uh, yeah, thank you for, you know, bringing bringing those up. Uh, let me let me try to comment on my, I think, yeah, first of all, the beta, which is the correlation of, of emerging markets is greater than one. They are riskier. Um, but I think that's reflected in their price. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't know what is the MCSI. You might know Jeremy better. Is it selling, what, 11, 12 times earnings? What is the number? Yeah, that's approximately right. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I mean, while the U.S. is, of course, selling at 17, 18, and Europe, uh, I, th- I think if you industry correct, is probably selling 13, 14. Um, uh, when you're when you're selling ten, eleven, twelve, you're you're talking about a nine percent earnings yield. Um, you know, uh, I I just think that that's a, a pervasive. I, I mean, I, and I think you're getting paid now for taking uh, those risks and the negatives that those factors that he points out uh, actually have. And and secondly. Um, when you look forward long term, uh, I, I think the world is still in a catch up. From you know, the developing world is growing one two percent. You know, our boundary we're at the frontier of technology, but the developing world is beginning to acquire what we acquired. You know, in the, in, in, in the in the 20th century. Um, you know, per capita income in in China is still what twenty five percent, twenty eight percent of the U S. In India, it's fifteen. Uh, you, you know, have two and a half billion people there. Uh, uh, you know, all they have to do is get to fifty, and you have unbelievable growth, and you have a middle class that's bigger than all the other Europe and, and U S. combined. I mean, there's when I look forward uh, on that scope, I I still see uh, the potential of much faster growth in those countries as a catch-up. They may or never hit the U.S., uh, India, China, maybe a half, maybe two-thirds if we look ahead, you know, quite a long time. But that is an amazing amount of growth. And clearly, they're going to be stumbling along the way. Um, but with, you know, transfers of technology and, uh, you know, information costs going down, you know, I, I see I see a catch-up. And, you know, I'm, I'm expecting that catch-up to to benefit those companies that, uh, you know, do serve uh, emerging markets and are in the emerging markets that serve um, uh, the developed world. So, That's great. again, I mean, I don't know if that uh, <laughs> answers all the questions. And clearly, I, 
you know, I mean, it's it's been a case of catching a falling knife. Let's face it, and I, my my fingers are bloodied. I will admit it. <laughs> no, nope, Professor. No. So, just as a quick endorsement of the book that that we worked on very hard together. If people want to read more about the catch up, the global solution, as you called it, in the future for investors. Uh, books uh, now over a decade old, but uh, it's a lot of real relevant information. Yeah. Thank you. All right, Professor. Thanks for some commentary here at the start of the show. Okay. Have a great weekend. So we're going to transition to our, our two guests, and uh, Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan, Ed Cole, who's a portfolio manager at ManGLG, the discretionary fund management business of Man Group, which oversees $114 billion globally. Um, Ed, Jesper, welcome to our program. Thanks for having me. And so, so maybe we'll we start off with uh, some of the the rebuttal points from my uh, my friend Wes on emerging markets. Ed, maybe you could tell tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to be portfolio manager at at uh, at Man Group, and tell, just how just a little bit about your background before we get into some general questions. Um, thanks very much. So, I guess um, I I came to where I am by virtue of um, sharing Professor Siegel's view some eighteen years ago as a sort of optimistic, starry-eyed young analyst, uh, believing wholeheartedly in the demographic promise and the growth of emerging markets. And um, 18 years on, I find myself back at square one with Turkey and Argentina both blowing up exactly as they were in my first few months of my career. So um, the progression has been somewhat less glittery than we might have hoped, but uh, I think you know we can always assume that the growth is still out there in the future. So I started my career about, as I say, 18 years ago, um, not quite 18 years ago, on the sell side as an investment strategist. Um, And in 2007, I moved to the buy side, and I've been managing long-only, long-short, and multi-strap portfolios um, since 2007. And is it right you you also cover Japan as one of your coverages when you're on the sell side? Uh, no, I did, in fact, for a few years on, on the buy side at a previous right. firm uh, when uh, the BOJ started its extraordinary stimulus with QQE in April 2013. My then boss, um, who had ignored Japan for quite some time, realized he needed a whipping boy for Japan, and that became me. Um, and uh, I think it was possibly close to the peak of, of the market after after the starting gun was fired on QQE. But, I, yes, I did look at Japan. Um, I... I've always greatly enjoyed visiting Japan compared to the emerging markets beat. Uh, visiting Japan is a is a true joy. Um, I have found many similarities, certainly between Japanese companies and other North Asian companies, which I'd be happy to dig into later on. But it's uh, always been a fascinating place for me to look at and to compare, I suppose, as potentially the global laboratory on demographics and deflation inflation. Jesper, and you, and I, I thought this was an interesting pair between Ed and you, as the sense that Japan trades like an emerging market with the volatility levels in the in the local market trading relative to the FX. Uh, the volatility is pretty high. No, absolutely, and uh, you know, in many ways, as Ed pointed out, sort of Japan is sort of the the, the big laboratory experiment. Uh, you know, in many different ways, you've obviously got the demographics there. Um, but you've also obviously got the whole policy mix with the massive intervention in asset markets that we get by the Bank of Japan. And then last but not least, and this is really sort of the crux, um, you know, this whole promise of endogenous uh, economic growth in the home economy. Um, and that's where sort of Japan is very similar to uh, a lot of the emerging markets. Uh, you know, let me be specific here. Uh, when you look at the profitability 
uh, of the topics of the Japanese uh, uh, equity-listed companies, uh, you actually find that now almost 64% of all earnings come from overseas. So they come from exports or from offshore production. Um, so it's not the domestic demand because it's not the domestic story that you're capturing in terms of the earnings profile. Um, and uh, I'd like to throw the question to Ed. Uh, you know, how does it look like, you know, for example, in, uh, for example, Chinese listed companies or Asian listed companies? What, what percentage of earnings actually comes from domestic demand growth? A very good question, and, and I haven't—I don't have the numbers to hand. But certainly, what we can see is that there are some global leaders in the Chinese markets, and I mean really a share markets now. So onshore, the part of the Chinese equity market that most overseas emerging market managers don't really look at in great detail, but it's the real lifeblood of the Chinese economy. And many of these true leaders in their industries—you have companies that operate in home appliances. Um, companies that, that make consumer durables, they have a very large percentage of their earnings coming from overseas, some of them up 40 to 50%. And, and really what they're doing is perfecting their product strategy domestically, um, perfecting their, their R&D and, and, their sophisticate, and growing their sophistication and then gradually starting to introduce the, their products into overseas markets. Initially, some of it is certainly happening in kind of white label form. Yeah. So you have very large home appliance companies who are OBM, ODM type manufacturers um, and are selling considerable proportions of their revenue in markets like the US. And But as they grow in sophistication, as they try and move up the value chain, they increasingly want to launch their own brands internationally. So right. it, it's certainly important. And I think one of the things I've found so interesting uh, at the risk of sort of jumping straight into China. That's but the big the question. That, that me... is the world's question is what's happening in China and what's happening <laughs> between Japan, China, U.S., China. It's all it's relevant for everybody. Yeah. So, I, And I'm sure we'll come back to this several times. But one of the things I found so fascinating in the last few months is that Chinese companies that have potentially up to 50 percent of their um, of their earnings and revenues coming from overseas have been punished entirely on domestic factors. Right. So we can see some of these home appliance companies that I mentioned that are geared, you know, pretty clearly to the US housing cycle, US consumer discretionary cycle, and they have traded entirely on domestic muse flow. And the consequence of that is that these companies, some of them with exceptionally high quality characteristics, you know, good balance sheets, um, high return on invested capital, are now trading, you know, having been trading possibly at a premium to international peers at the beginning of this year, are now trading at very, very steep discounts. And it's starting to me to throw out, I think, some exceptional value opportunities because you have companies that have been punished um, really indiscriminately uh, on headline factors. And one of the things I think that we tend to find again and again, and it probably comes a bit to the the statement you said at the beginning about the sort of lack of diversification, but the higher beta you get from EM, mm -hmm. is that where markets are deeply inefficient, and I think you would struggle really to find any major market in the world that is less efficient than China A. And that's one of the reasons that I find it you know, so interesting and, and such a great source of opportunity. But where markets are, are inefficient, um, when panic sets in, and I think it would be fair to describe A-shares in China as, as in sort of panic territory at the moment, 
there is no sense of fundamentals or valuation that comes into play in the way that people approach these opportunities. In many respects, we can think of Chinese investors who dominate the A-share market as the world's greatest non-algorithmic trend followers. They, they, they buy it when it goes up and they sell it when it goes down. And the kind of considerations I'm mentoring, which is sensible balance sheets, diversified sources of earnings and revenue, and, uh, and cheap valuations just simply don't matter at these points in time. Well, that, that's interesting because this is an interesting year for A-shares. I mean, it's being down 30%. It's certainly selling off. Um, it's an interesting question. Is it selling off on a slowdown in the economy or it's slowing off on Trump's trade war with China? Um, and uh, MSCI is adding A-shares, you know, for the first time, but in very, very slow pace. Um, it helped me look at and actually uh, interesting for a lot of my indexes. My EM indexes rebounds today. So it's an interesting conversation. We're actually adding 5% A-shares to a lot of our indexes. It's sort of an interesting time to do that. Any, how do you think about A-shares? Is that something that when you look at the benchmarks like MSCI, are you benchmark aware? Do you think about that? So we're in entirely benchmark agnostic here, um, which I think in the long run is a uh, very sensible way to, to allocate capital because it can play on, on the scope for inefficiencies, which is ultimately, you know, as a fundamental stock picker, how you make your alpha by um, recognizing undervalued quality, which is my style bias um, in, in stocks and sectors that, that the mainstream isn't looking at. And in that respect, I find China A to be one of the really the true great frontiers in the world. Um, it, it is a place where you can find, as I've mentioned, true global leaders trading at, at idiotic multiples versus their global peers and, and with con- corporate governance and value creation priorities that really match any company you'll find anywhere in the world. That's a small subset of it. There's an awful lot of um, sort of indecipherable companies who, whose purpose you know one can't fully comprehend uh, that are probably performing a social or local government function more than a, uh, a shareholder value creation function. But I think, you know, in principle and structurally, I think it's an enormously interesting opportunity. Um, at this point in time, I mean, I think if you're adding 5% to your indices now, it's brilliantly opportune. Uh, it's brilliantly opportune. That's interesting. This, to me, is one of the really potentially great buying opportunities that we're seeing in China A. And I, I think there are various ways to think about that. But to your question about um, what has driven the market down to, to where it is today, it's always difficult or difficult to accurately fit a, a narrative. It's easy to come up with sort of headline reasons, but I can't tell you with confidence that my reasons are right. But I think to throw some of those out, we've clearly had a, a slowdown in the economy. I mean, since Xi was uh, confirmed as president for life last year at the party congress about this time last year, um, he has been pursuing more of a sort of deleveraging um, policy which has certainly seen credit provision until about the second quarter slow down and and the economy slow down in response to that. And that's clearly starting to show up, I think, in some extent in in cyclical sector earnings. On top of that, there's some fear, I think, about the potential for a sort of growing reach of the state. And maybe that's a slightly sort of amorphous thing to discuss, but it, it, there are some senses I think that, that state power maybe and state influence may be on the rise again, um, and that is evident in some companies. Um, I, I won't be mentioning company names, but there are large U.S.-listed Chinese companies who have I can think we can start to see deviating from their core 
focus and strategy and starting to allocate capital to things that can probably only really be explained through um, a lens of statism and state interference. So those things certainly come to play. And then, of course, there's the trade war on top of it, which is just a great source of uncertainty, both, I think, for anyone internationally allocating capital, anyone who may be thinking long term about their business priorities and where they allocate their capital. And, and for Chinese policymakers. And all of those things have coalesced in one to create a, a really, you know, a, a monumental panic. And we've actually kind of tried to quantify that because panic is an easy word to throw around. But I think my effort has been to try to place that in a empirical context, which I do by looking at sort of trailing measures of the force of selling so I've looked at the percentage of down days in Shanghai Composite Index over a trailing three-month period. And I found that about eight times in history, you've had these moments where over 60% of the trailing days in that period are down. And it's quite a crude measure. But if you think that equity markets typically trend up over time, it's quite extraordinary to have almost two-thirds of days in a period where markets go down. And when I backtest that signal, I find that there's a phenomenally strong hit rate on on positive forward returns. And we're just now, in the last few weeks, come back into one of those periods again where uh, where down days is or the the, the down day proportion is 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 over sixty percent again. Let me just reintroduce our guest here. We're talking with Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan, Ed Cole, portfolio manager at the Man Group. Jesper, there's a lot of uh, interesting parallels there. What I was just talking about in terms of the corporate governance of Chinese companies, <laughs> Japan is not, you know, they were historically not known for corporate governance, although you see a lot more trends in dividends and buybacks and a lot of more shareholder friendly things. Maybe just high level, what do you t- talk about what you see as the case for Japan today? Like, what is the macro uh, story that you're talking about? today? Uh, I think it's very straightforward. And uh, the catchword is earnings and shareholder value. Um, And, uh, you know, you've got to remember, um, you know, that, uh, you know, Japan used to be, um, you know, entangled in these cross shareholdings. So, you know, if you were not part of one of the big conglomerate groups, uh, you know, you had very little access to accurate information, even accurate accounting, uh, and certainly not uh, corporate strategy. And this has changed. These cross shareholdings, which 20 years ago were about 50% of market capitalization, uh, are now down to about 4%. Um, and as a result of that, you find that, uh, you know, Japanese listed companies have become much more capitalistic and management has really changed. It's very interesting, um, you know, five years ago, the average age of an executive director at a listed company in Japan was 72. It is now 52. Um, that's, that's a very radical change. So you've got a younger generation of managers no longer entangled into these, uh, you know, rigid business partnerships, the KVETS structure. And on top of that, you've got investors, uh, the large public pension fund, actually putting pressure on Japanese management to generate higher rates of return, to present a credible, uh, you know, corporate strategies and to maximize shareholder returns. So you're seeing record increases in dividends, very good increases in share buybacks. And so from that perspective, Japan has become very shareholder friendly, plus, you've got a corporate sector that is incredibly competitive. 
and you know you actually do find with uh, you know the currency where we are today uh, whether it's a car company whether it's a robotics company whether it's even you know consumer goods companies uh, you find that japanese companies are actually growing their market share internationally and uh, you know it's 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 going to be a long cycle of steady and positive uh, upward revisions to corporate earnings um, and against the valuation backdrop that's very, very attractive. I mean, you know, the large indices in Japan are trading, you know, sub uh, 14 times price earnings multiple, uh, which is, uh, you know, significantly below where they've traded over the last 10 years. So you've got the low valuations plus the high potential for positive earnings revision momentum. That really is the fundamental case for Japan. Now, uh, yes, but could I could I just ask a question on, on that? Um, I guess one of the things that that struck me in my my time as a both an emerging markets specialist and a Japan uh, specialist, or I hesitate to use the word specialist, but someone looking at Japan, was that there was something of a zero sum nature between Japan Japanese equities and emerging market equities in in stock market terms, in that the currency tended to be a yeah. big driver. A weak yen obviously driving Japanese equities up and um, weak EM currencies driving them down. And one of the things that I've sort of noticed as I've looked at currency valuation globally is that the yen is spectacularly cheap um, on a real effective exchange rate basis. And as you mentioned, um, Japanese corporates are extremely competitive now. In a world where we might see yen strength, Potentially, I, I'm not making a forecast, but a, a scenario to consider. Is that still a world in which Japanese equities can perform? I would like to think it is, that it yeah. no longer just becomes a macro trade. No, but, but Ed, you, you put your finger on the pulse there. You know, uh, the gearing into global growth and the gearing into the exchange rate, um, you know, has been very high. Um, and the good news is that corporate Japan is very, very conservative in their baseline assumptions. You know, the largest car company, um, you know, is budgeting for a yen dollar exchange rate of 105 for the current mm. year and for next year. Um, you know, now currently we're trading at around, what, 112, you know, and every windfall, you know, every one yen of yen depreciation adds back, uh, you know, almost half a percent, you know, to corporate earnings in Japan. So, number one, the good news is, uh, you know, it, it's empirical that the gearing of corporate Japan into the exchange rate does remain very high. As I mentioned, 64% of the earnings come from overseas. So, you know, yen weakness generates windfalls, yen appreciation, uh, you know, generates headwinds. But the good news is that in the here and now, uh, corporate Japan is budgeting extremely conservatively. The biggest worry and this, this goes back to you, Ed, and, and we've seen this particularly over the last, uh, you know, uh, uh, I think a couple of weeks again. The biggest worry is that, fine, we've got a reasonable understanding on how the Japanese yen can work against the U.S. dollar, but the new kit on the block is the Chinese renminbi, the Chinese currency. And as you know, over the last couple of weeks, again, the People's Republic of, of China appears to be tolerant of actually letting the renminbi depreciate. And that's a potential mm. new headwind uh, for corporate Japan because of a lot of Japanese companies are now competing head-to-head against their Chinese competitors. I mean, Japan builds the Shinkansen bullet train. 
but so does the People's Republic of China. So if China starts a currency war and depreciates its currency, that would be a potential new headwind. I mean, we we're just talking about the competitive situation. Jesper brought up how there's this now sort of currency wars where the Chinese renminbi has been declining. Chinese government sort of allowing it to happen. Um, is that something? Do we see more currency weakness from China? Is it something that China's manipulating? The U.S. government didn't declare China currency manipulator. That was one of the worries from this week. Were they going to call them out as manipulating the currency? And any thoughts on on what's happening in the currency markets there? Yeah, I mean, I think I think China faces a very tough bind with its currency. Um, over the last few years, China's current account deficit has eroded pretty much inexorably. And there's two main drivers of that, which are, number one, a tourism deficit. So around $250 billion a year of tourism deficit for the Chinese. And that, bear in mind, is coming against the backdrop of only 10% of the Chinese population having a passport. So that's one very difficult um, dynamic for the Chinese to deal with. And the other is energy. And again, China runs around a $250 billion energy deficit. And there's a limited amount they can do And in the event that the economy becomes far more efficient there could be some savings. But I think we should also assume that over time, uh, car ownership will continue to increase and, and that the energy intensity will be hard to bring energy intensity down. So those two things together have pretty much taken, it's about 4% of GDP, have pretty much taken the current account into balance. And I think it's reasonable to expect that that will become a deficit over time. And for China, which wants to be self-sufficient, um, that doesn't require funding from the rest of the world, that's a little bit of a difficult situation to be in. I think then if you add on top of that, that the economy is really clearly to me stim- in stimulus mode at the moment, that um, monetary policy is quite loose, that credit impulse is turning higher, um, I would expect that we will see rate policy rate cuts at some point um, over coming months, that all of this stimulus against the backdrop of a current account that is no longer in surplus, really, pretty much inexorably is going to be pushing RMB weaker. I don't think that that doesn't preclude in the event of a bout of dollar weakness that that we wouldn't see some sort of rally against the dollar. But I think it does mean that over time, we should be anticipating um, that as the economy reaccelerates, the deficits will grow and, and CMY will tend to be under pressure. I guess that, you know, Yester's point is a very interesting one, which is on competition. I mean, my impression, I think there clearly are areas where China can compete and and bullet trains probably is one area. And I certainly have companies in my portfolio that I think are competitive with global companies and some, in fact, that are leaders. But it's really interesting to me when we start to look at the most sophisticated parts of the global supply chain in capital goods and technology, because I see plenty of commentary from China bulls, let's call them broadly China bulls, talking about the capacity for China to join Korea and Japan and the US at the top of the value-added chain in high-tech exports, for example, in things like foundry for logic chips or robotics and, and AI. And my experience so far of that, and both as an experience in looking at Japanese companies and some of whom are at the very top of of these industries, and also looking at China, is that there's little evidence really that 
that that's the case, that yes, China is making the cost of capital spectacularly cheap for companies that they want to be global competitors in these spaces, but still that there's a very large technology gap. Um, and if I was to put some numbers behind that, I mean, Foundry, the, the logic chip industry, which I think is obviously crucial um, and China sees as crucial probably in its own defense interests in the long term. Um, the Chinese leader in that, which is called SMIC, um, spends 3% of Intel's level on R&D annually, which I think is about $400 million. Um, it claims to be a 14 nanometer node, which is, um, to put in context, TSMC is at seven now, but Intel is struggling at 10. And Intel is the, pretty much the largest spender on R&D in this industry. So I find some of these claims a little bit hard to to um, get behind. And I certainly think that even a kind of moderate, moderate devaluation of RMB from here, if that happens over the next few years, I don't think that will broadly change the balance when it comes to the most sophisticated uh, industries globally. Yes, Bruno, when we, when we talk about cost of capital, nowhere is cost of capital lower than the negative rates and zero rates in Japan. Um, so that's one thing you got going for you. Any, But you also talk a lot about, to the Ed's point here on innovation spending, That that is one of the things that you think Japan is the leader in. No, absolutely. And I think Ed puts his, uh, his finger, you know, onto the pulse here. I mean, you know, there's no question that if you want to go further, you know, and if you speak to engineers, it's very clear. You know, if you, if you need the top 10% of quality in the world, and whether that's robotics, whether that's, uh, you know, chip manufacturing, whether that's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, screens for your mobile phones, uh, you know, you've got to go to Japan. And, uh, you know, the Japanese are, however, very cognizant of that that, uh, you know, China is, uh, you know, mobilizing. Uh, China does want to be in that space. And as a result of that, you're seeing a huge surge in R&D spending. And you're actually seeing government policy very, very focused on giving uh, added incentives uh, for Japanese companies, not just to invest in the basic research, but to actually commercialize, um, you know, the products that are coming through. Um, and uh, but but make no mistake, I think Ed's absolutely right. At the very high end space of technology, um, you know, the Japanese are still absolutely cutting edge. Um, you know, but you know, everybody in Japan is uh, you know looking at the People's Republic of China, and just as you know, when you look at construction machinery, uh, you know, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, China was nowhere in terms of construction machinery. Now China is a viable global competitor. And uh, that's going to happen, uh, you know, on the higher value added scheme as well here. Now, the, the other thing that is happening, which is which is very interesting, um, you know, and Ed, you, you probably have some comments on this, is that you do actually find, uh, you know, partnerships between Japanese corporations and uh, Chinese corporations. Um, so in the white goods space, for example, you have Chinese higher group. Uh, buying out the white's good part from Sharp Corporation. Um, and uh, you're actually seeing currently a record amount of inward M&A into Japan uh, led by uh, companies from the People's Republic of China. So, yes, there is the competition at the very, very high end. And certainly Japan, you know, very, very much wants to preserve its intellectual property. But at the same time, you know, the cooperation and the ability and willingness to work together is actually starting to come through. And it was very, very interesting that even at the political level, 
um, you know, the Japan-China relationship, which has been very frosty, you know, uh, basically over the first six years of Prime Minister Abe's rule, you know, that Japan-China relationship is actually beginning to warm up a little bit. Specifically, uh, in May, there was the trilateral meeting between China, Japan, and Korea in Tokyo. And for the first time ever, uh, Japan and China uh, signed an agreement to actually do joint bidding for infrastructure projects in Asia-Pacific. And, uh, you know, I think that this this sort of, uh, you know, competition and cooperation, um, that's going to be a new theme uh, between Japan and China and Prime Minister Abe going uh, for the first ever uh, bilateral summit with President Xi uh, next week. I think that that's, you know, something we need to watch very, very carefully, um, you know, that you do actually get, yes, a high-level competition between Japan and China, but at the same time, you are actually seeing a rapprochement, you are actually seeing the two countries getting closer together, cooperating at the private level, and, you know, we'll see after next week's summit, probably at the government level as well. We're talking with Ed Cole, Portfolio Manager at Man Group, Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan. Uh, I'm Jeremy Schwartz. We're talking about this global dynamic in Japan and in China, part of really front and center of a lot of the headlines right now. And, Ed, you know, one of the big stories, we talked a, lot, a little bit about the A-shares opportunity. When I think about, and you talked about some of the investments of the list, U.S.-listed uh, China companies, what's interesting, when I look at the aggregate P ratios, and Professor Eagle talked about at the start of the show, why he likes emerging markets generally, you have 12 PEs, 8 to 9% real earnings yields. Um, Jesper, when I look at our indexes for Japan, I actually see 12 PEs also. So 8, 8% earnings yields, 11, 11, to 8, 11 to 12 PEs, actually very similar for, for the Wisdom Tree indexes on, on Japan. But Ed, when, when you think about what's interesting about EM today is that it's no longer just energy materials companies. You have big tech companies, the, Ch- the China tech companies being leaders, and you're still getting 12 PEs. Now, that's partly because you get Chinese banks at 5 PEs, so you're sort of balancing it out. Um, with the sort of high growth tech and the sort of traditional state-owned banks at very low multiples. But do you see, you know, what you see China tech champions of the Alibaba's and Tencent's of the world, do you see that happening outside of China for broader EM? Well, I think in tech hardware, it, it exists. I mean, we can clearly see that Taiwan in tech hardware is a, a true leader um, and has eclipsed, in fact, you know, even U.S. companies and Japanese companies when it comes to things like foundry or handset um, components. So Taiwan and also Korea, to some extent, you know, they are they are global leaders in tech hardware. I think when it comes to um, the kind of Internet platform space, it's much, much harder. And I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that the growth of the companies you've mentioned and in so search, e-commerce, social networking has all been possible in China because of the walled garden that the government created, which was, in essence, zero competition from any international peers. And that's a, a truly extraordinary opportunity to be given a kind of carte blanche to go out and become monopolistic or quasi-monopolistic players in platform industries, which are winner-takes-all anyway, with a consumer base or a user base potentially of 1.2 billion. And that's really, you know, extraordinary and will never be repeated again. Whereas for the other EMs who who are have their own nascent platform businesses, and there are some in Latin America, some in Russia, they are broadly having to compete with the Googles and Amazons of the world. And I think that precludes the development of any of these 
companies on the sort of scale that we've seen in China. I also think, by the way, that there's two other considerations with these Chinese giants. The first is that I sincerely doubt their ability to compete meaningfully overseas. I think none of these companies have really truly had to face proper competition. And I think at a point where they try to expand into overseas markets with their existing offering, I think they will struggle greatly. They will certainly be able to do some of their um, functions, some of their verticals in overseas markets. I think if you offer gaming, you can publish games in overseas markets. But to offer the full service platform that they have in China, I think will be very difficult because they're already first movers in place everywhere else in the world and and they have established positions. And the second thing that I think comes with it, which is the function, the other other side of the, the quid pro quo on the walled garden, is what the government wants in response. And I think unlike Google or Amazon, many of these Chinese companies have to fulfill functions for their other stakeholder, and that's the Chinese government. And so we have seen these names um, in social networking, in, in e-commerce, in search, investing into unrelated companies in non-core businesses, which I can only assume is Beijing looking at the resources that it has available to it and recognizing that there are new economy companies generating surplus cash flows that can be used to lower the cost of capital and increase the financial muscle in either old economy companies that have insufficient cash flows or in even newer industries that are at this point nascent. Beyond uh, China, because we focused a lot about that, and certainly that's a really the global driver today, where would you say you're most optimistic on, on emerging markets generally? What are the other countries that you, you think are good long-term growth stories, maybe good value opportunities with all this sell-off now, or just sort of what you, where, where you t- tend to be, be bullish on? Um, I think there's a lot of opportunity. I think there are many. I think there's always opportunities in EM. I think we have a tendency to think of it as a single asset class, but in fact, it's a very loose definition that encompasses a great umbrella of many different opportunities. I think one country that stands out on a sort of five to ten year view is Mexico. Very often overlooked by uh, when when compared with other countries because it's not particularly cheap by virtue of its sector makeup. It doesn't have any of the sexy tech stocks that get people excited. Um, so it's sort of missed out on this period of, of people chasing growth at any price. But if you think geopolitically about what's going on with increasing regionalization under NAFTA 2.0 and uh, about how supply chains will be changing in the future, and I think you know whatever happens in the next few months with the trade war between the US and China, I think there are real question marks that have been raised about where supply chains sit. And I think one of the big winners in that will be Mexico, um, which, I mean, if we take NAFTA 2.0 as a starting point, and even in existing industries like automobiles, one of the uh, proposals or one of the agreements under NAFTA was to increase the proportion of local content in the automotive industry which will naturally bring, I think, more jobs to North America, but particularly to Mexico, which is competitive, and potentially even deepen the role that Mexican production offers. So at the moment, they play a predominant role in autos in in, um, assembly, but very little role in R&D. 
And I think there's a, a strong possibility under these new NAFTA rules that we could start to see R&D increase in Mexico. So now we find ourselves in an environment with a new president with an exceptionally strong mandate. Six months ago, he was considered a, a, a populist nightmare. He's now perceived to be a fiscal conservative. I'm sure he's probably neither. He's somewhere in between. But he has a very strong mandate for reform, and they have a new trade deal with their biggest trading partner. Um, and I think an increasing regionalization, which should put a tailwind behind Mexico. So that's one place I think is is interesting. Um, another place that is always interesting, it will never not be interesting, is India, mm. um, which I think we, most people would look at as the sort of great secular endogenous domestic demand story of our times. Um, it's a fascinating place right now because I think we've been reminded, despite the, the constant growth opportunity that you can witness when you look at Indian companies in, in anything that faces the domestic population, that there are times when the international economy encroaches on India. And what I mean by that at the moment really is, is evident in two ways. First is in the pressure from rising interest rates internationally. So the cost of funding in India has gone up quite considerably this year. And the second is the oil price. And India is a, is a large energy deficit country. And so the way that those two things have played out is that first, the cost of interest, the cost of funding in the finance sector has pushed a shockwave through India's non-bank financing companies. And these are specialist shadow banking companies that um, extend credit where the formal banking system typically doesn't to the mortgage sector, to auto vehicle, auto financing, to commercial vehicle financing, uh, infrastructure financing. And there's been some asset quality problems and funding concerns as the cost of funding has gone up. And it's pushed a real shockwave through mid-cap India. Um, then, they, then you add into that the concern that the oil price, um, uh, that a rising oil price, which is up in, in rupee terms this year, about 45%, that that is starting to sap the consumer's capacity to, uh, to to consume at the margin. And so we started to see auto sales hit, two-wheeler sales hit. And these, I think, are just road bumps along the way to what is a, a, a very bright future for consumption. And it's happening against the backdrop where finally the Indian banking sector, after 10 years of deleveraging, is in a position to start lending again. But it is a reminder, I think, that these these perceived long-term secular growth stories can have considerable road bumps along the way. India is definitely one of the more interesting uh, interesting places that we like. Um, I want to just we have a few more minutes in our final countdown. Jesper, he brought up uh, I brought up a very interesting point on on the new NAFTA uh, and I talk about autos and uh, the manufacturing components in yep. in, uh, in in North America. Now, yeah, <laughs> there's no more country more interested in autos than Japan, and there's is Japan in the U.S. going to get a, a deal? And also, just a lot of people think of of well we talked about the revenue from overseas coming from yep. Japan and you know one of the the car companies here are some of the most US centric uh, companies in the sense of a lot of their their cars are built here in the US with so not as much exported any talk on on the trade deal and then the auto sector there okay a, a couple of things here first of all I mean just look at the leader uh, which is Toyota and Toyota has announced that they are adding capacity in two places number one the People's Republic of China, and number two, Mexico. 
and it was very, very interesting, um, you know, that, you know, immediately after NAFTA 2.0, right, uh, where there's now some clarity in terms of what the local content requirements and what the rules of the game under President Trump are going to be, you know, immediately you actually saw capital commitment, uh, you know, from uh, Japan's largest car company here. Um, you know, the... Um, uh, the other element is in terms of the uh, in negotiations between Japan and the United States. Um, you know, as you know, uh, Japan uh, does not want to do a bilateral agreement. Uh, Japan is uh, quite aggressively actually defending the sort of multilateral framework, which is really what is needed uh, in Asia. But they have come up with a compromise, these TAG talks, um, which effectively means that, yes, you know, Japan and the United States are moving uh, towards some form of, uh, you know, bilateral uh, agreement going forward. And for all intents and purposes, we know that the relationship between uh, President Trump and Prime Minister Abe is a very, very strong one. Uh, so this uh, threat of uh, uh, Japanese car companies being hit with the 25% import tariff for all intents and purposes. I mean, the risk for that, you know, has come down very, very significantly. So we're in our, our sort of final countdown, maybe 30 seconds. Ed, uh, any f- closing thoughts on EM generally you just want to get people's attention to and in your work? Yeah, I think, I mean, just to go back to the very beginning, we're talking about valuation. I find valuation to be an insufficient um, criteria for markets to rally. I think you need a combination of earnings lift um, and possibly a capitulation. Um, We are in the process of a capitulation. It's always hard to pinpoint the bottom, but risk appetite is exceptionally poor at the moment. But the one thing just quickly to say on, on valuation, which I think does matter over the long run, but won't help you over the short run, is that a clearer way of looking at value rather than the static multiple is a cyclically adjusted PE. And on that measure, and I think the reason why EM should always have, or not always, but at this point in time should have a a place in people's portfolios, is that the cyclically adjusted PE in EM is around 10 times, and in the US is around 30 times. And when you backtest forward compound returns from those sorts of levels, EM typically has delivered you double-digit five-year forward returns, and the U.S. has delivered very little indeed. Well, Jesper, uh, Ed Cole, uh, we ran out of time, but it's been a great conversation. Thank you both for joining both at Foreign Markets here. We talked with Edward Cole, Portfolio Manager at the Man Group, Jesper Cole, CEO of Wisdom Tree Japan. I'm Jeremy Schwartz. Thanks to our producer, Patty Hall, our sound engineer today, Dion Simpkins. Have a great week, everybody. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.